One Sabbath, he, meaning Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, this is the story that we find ourselves in as we're going through the book of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 2, verse 23, to chapter 3, verse 6, and we find ourselves in a little bit of a controversy over this incident with Jesus and some of the religious leaders of the day. Now, at first glance on this story, you might think that the conflict was, well, it looks like they're stealing grain. We shouldn't do that on Sabbath or any other day, right? But in, uh, in the Mosaic law, in that culture, it actually was okay as you were walking through somebody else's field to pick a few gra- uh, heads of grain, um, as long as you didn't harvest it, all right? There is a line. Uh, this was provision for need, not authorization for theft. Um, but the, the conflict centers around that they were doing this on a particular day, the Sabbath, that what they were doing seemed to count as work, at least according to hundreds of years of interpretation of God's law. Here's what God actually says about the Sabbath. In Exodus chapter 20, we read, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the Sabbath was instituted as a blessing to mankind for several purposes. One to physically rest and recuperate, right? It doesn't go well for people to work seven days a week all the time, never having breaks, never having rest. It just doesn't work well for the body or the soul. It was also instituted to help focus and further a relationship with God because that was a day that was an offering of time each week that the Israelites would set aside and focus on worship of God. Also, it was to underscore a dependence upon God. Because if you took a day off, especially in harvest time, that is really an exercise of faith. It means that you're not working that extra day to try and get ahead of your neighbor. You are trusting that God is going to provide in the six days that you have to work. But there are some questions in this whole situation and scenario. And one of them that I have is what were the Pharisees doing anyway? Right? This whole situation seems like they are following Jesus around, looking to try and trap him or catch him or his disciples doing something wrong. They had lots of rules on the Sabbath, even about the certain number of steps that you could take before it was considered work, and so it seems like the Pharisees are using up their steps just trying to stalk Jesus. 
Well, here's what Jesus has to say. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So Jesus, interestingly, doesn't argue on whether or not this was work or not work. He doesn't say, no, that's just an interpretation. My disciples are fine. At least he doesn't say that directly. Instead, he goes to a story in Scripture uh, from the book of 1 Samuel, which has confused a lot of people ever since. Uh, The background of the story is this. Uh, Before he was king, David had to flee from the current king, Saul, because Saul was out to kill him. He was a little unhinged. Um, He did it in a hurry and uh, therefore apparently didn't have enough time to pack provisions or didn't have enough uh, to pack in his hurry. So he goes to this place of worship um, and uh, asks for some food for him and for his men. The priest there says, well, the only thing that he has is bread of the presence, this bread that they would set out, um, I believe, each week as an offering to the Lord, and it would sit there uh, for the week, um, again, as an offering, and then at the end of it, it's kind of like the bakery outlet, right? The priests get to eat that old bread, they put new bread there, and it works out just fine, except David is in need. And it is kind of a strange story in a couple of different ways. Uh, David seems to lie about why he's there in the first place. Okay, so maybe Jesus is not uh, making the analogy uh, quite as strict. Um, But it's also odd that Jesus would appeal to a story in which David did something that was against the Mosaic law. Because it almost seems like an admission of guilt of breaking the law. Here's what is clear. Jesus Jesus appeals to Scripture. He doesn't get into an argument about, no, your interpretation, no, my interpretation, Rabbi so-and-so's interpretation. He goes to Scripture, God's Word. And it's almost like Jesus pointing to that Scripture might be placing an emphasis on David and his authority. Because even though Saul was king at that point, David was anointed, he was going to be the future king, Uh, the priest gives them bread, and David vouches for his men that they're clean enough, ceremonially clean enough, to eat of the bread of the presence. And so this may be a subtle, or maybe not so subtle in that culture, claim Uh, to be at at least that minimum authority of David who had God's anointing and was going to be the future king. Of course, Jesus is reigning king because he's God, but he may be easing into that with those around him. But I I think one of the real thrusts of this story is that sense of need. Right? David and his men were hungry. They needed food, plain and simple. And there was an opportunity for this priest to either help David and his men or turn them away 
hungry. The priest chose to help. Going back to the story about Jesus and the disciples, the disciples were hungry. What did they need? Food. Again, what's interesting is that the Pharisees are walking around looking at all of this. If they were so concerned about adhering to their interpretation of the Sabbath, they probably could have invited the disciples over and fed them so that they wouldn't have to work. That doesn't seem to have crossed their mind because the Pharisees put their policies and power above people and their need. Well, Jesus continues on, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now the other gospel accounts, Matthew and Luke, don't have verse 27. And some have wondered whether there was some concern with recording Jesus' words, that maybe there would be this sense of, well, if Jesus elevated man above the law, then we can do whatever we want, whenever is convenient, whatever, quote-unquote, need we have. I don't think Jesus' purpose was to give license, but I do think it was to ground this argument and this conflict in something bigger. Right? The law was intended to be a blessing, to people, not a burden. The law were guidelines for a better relationship, putting people above policies and procedures. And Jesus seems to use this, this title for himself, Son of Man. It's kind of an odd title, especially in conjunction with Lord. He says the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And it sort of presents, at least when I read that, this sense of tension. It's that tension of Jesus being man, representative, the best representative of man, because he's perfect, and and also God. Of Jesus being ruler and servant, of Jesus being full of grace and truth, of Jesus being judge and mercy giver, all of these tensions that he holds perfectly and seem very odd from our perspective, but Jesus being the Son of Man and the Son of God. But his point, again, Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath, over every other day of the week, over the point of it, over the purpose of it, over the truths surrounding it, and the Pharisees have gone too far. So far that they can't even see their own hypocrisy and how warped their priorities are. And now we get to a second conflict surrounding the Sabbath. And this is in uh, chapter 3. It says, Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Again, one has to wonder. It doesn't say it in the text, but I have to wonder whether the Pharisees even brought this guy in to trap or test Jesus. They weren't above that. They weren't above trying to trap and test Jesus. In fact, 
the author Mark says that's exactly why they were there and why they were watching him so closely. Regardless of how active they were in this situation, they were definitely passive when it came to helping. They weren't doing anything for the man. But what they were doing was waiting for Jesus to cross a line that they had set. Jesus had already healed on the Sabbath. Is he going to do it again? Their attention isn't on God. It isn't on helping the man. It's on trying to watch Jesus mess up and do something that they disapprove of. So Jesus takes them head on. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Jesus does make this more public. The story doesn't say anything about the man coming to Jesus, asking to be healed. Jesus takes the bull by the horns and says, although it's, it's a little bit lost in the translation here, he says something akin to get up in the middle. The seating would have been around the edges, around the walls of the synagogue that they would be in. And so Jesus says, all right, let's go center stage. And then he speaks to the Pharisees. And he asks them a question. The answer is relatively easy. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? The answer is yes and no. Yeah, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. No, it's not lawful to do harm on the Sabbath or any other day of the week for that matter. They were, we are, supposed to be a blessing to others every day of the week. But they won't say that. It's like a child refusing to say sorry. It's frustrating. In the book of Luke, in this story, Jesus asks those, this of those who would accuse him. He said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Like, well, if the Sabbath is about rest, it might depend on which kid fell into the well. Just leave him there for a few hours, have some peace and quiet. But in all seriousness, one, one commentator pointed out that the juxtaposition between doing good or doing harm on the Sabbath presented a situation from which there's really no escape. Right? Jesus had two choices. He could help this man by healing him, or he could ignore him. Is there really a choice? Right? He could do something which is healing him. He could do nothing which is actually doing something. Because it's actually doing harm. Right? To, to have the power to help someone and to choose not to, that's evil. So in some ways, Jesus has a choice, but he really doesn't have a choice. Because doing evil is totally contrary to his character and to his ministry and to his person. To encounter Jesus is to present a person 
with an opportunity for their life to be saved. Not just physically, but eternally. It's not recorded in this story, but we've, we've read earlier in the book of Mark about Jesus addressing the forgiveness of sins before his spiritual healing, before the physical healing. That's what you get when you encounter Jesus. He was in the business of saving lives, of saving souls. And so if we say that Jesus has a choice, then he chose correctly. The choice to be the most blessing and the least burden on others. And he looked around at them with anger, Mark writes, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus gets angry. Again, going back to that example of a, of a child that refuses to say sorry. It is so frustrating because of the hardness of their heart. And that's where Jesus is. Does God get angry? Yeah, he does. Does he get frustrated? Yeah, he does. It's always righteously. But this is the situation that is most frustrating, to be presented with an opportunity to bless and to instead turn that around and look to burden others. One commentator said, as this man stretched out his hand, Mark is referring to faith without using the word. This man had a choice as well. It was as simple as, do I stretch out my hand and risk, or do I not? Again, the man chose wisely to trust that when Jesus asked him to stretch out his hand, he would receive healing. But instead of rejoicing, instead of rejoicing in the man's healing, instead of rejoicing in the man's faith that was demonstrated, even just by that simple act of stretching out his hands, what do the Pharisees do? Caught him. Let's go consult with the Herodians, which is, we don't know a whole lot about them, but as the name would imply, we assume that they were people who... Uh, that associated or supported uh, King Herod, who was someone who was put in over uh, the Jews at that point in time by the Roman Empire. And so why is this ironic? Well, the Pharisees join with a political group in order to accomplish their purposes, which seem more political, just couched in spiritual clothes but the irony is so thick, right? Jesus restores, the Pharisees try to destroy. Jesus brings newness of life, the Pharisees plot death and destruction. While they're waiting for a savior to deliver them from Roman rule, they tangle themselves up with a group that likely supports the leader put in place over them by those they want to be delivered from. Mind blown. How could it get to that point? 
Well, here's how I think it happened. The Pharisees appeared to be focused so much on what people couldn't do on the Sabbath that it didn't seem like they got to actually enjoy the Sabbath. Now, I don't think the Pharisees were crazy. I don't think they intended to be evil. They were intending to be righteous in their observance of the law, but they were living in fear. What if we cross a line? What if somebody else crosses a line? What if we even get near that line? They also had more than a few control issues and ultimately just missed the whole point. Again, they were focused on what not to do, that they missed what they were supposed to do. The Sabbath was a commandment that started positively. Remember when we read it before? It says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. That's positive. That's what we're, that's what we're to do. What they focused on was the negative part. You're not supposed to work. Okay, let's focus all of our energy on that and try and define that. That was the Pharisees' frame of mind. And again, they were looking for opportunities to catch Jesus, to trap him. Jesus is looking for opportunities to bless God and bless people. The Sabbath was supposed to be a blessing, a gift for rest, to further a relationship with God, to foster dependence upon God. And what the Pharisees were doing was taking what was holy and they were putting a fence around it. Now that in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. To protect yourself, to guard yourself. Because if there's one thing about sinful humans, it's that we love to go to the edge and over it testing limits. Exhibit A, children. Also adults. Right, that's what we do. I'll give you some examples of how this can play out. Okay, for instance, God's word says, be sexually pure. It's okay to put a fence around that. Because I didn't have much of a fence around that when I started dating my wife, Linda, we built a fence. And so our first kiss on the lips was at our wedding. Okay, that's our fence. I'm not saying that needs to be anybody else's fence, but that was our fence. Do I regret it? No. It helped us focus on more important things in our relationship. But if we're building fences, we do need to be careful. I'll give you another example. God's word says, don't get drunk. But I put up a fence. This is like 12 foot high, chain link, razor wire on top fence. You just don't drink. I've never been ashamed of something I've done under the influence of alcohol because I've never been under the influence of alcohol. Again, this is my fence. But why we need to be careful is because I have been very self-righteous and pharisaical about my fence. And sometimes I feel like I'm missing the point. Because my fence around alcohol doesn't require any thought. 
It's like a lazy man's fence, right? I put the fence so far back, I don't need to think about it. It's just not an option in my life. I don't need to be guided by the Holy Spirit to know how to behave or act in any given situation. So we need to be careful if we are building fences. Because again, what can happen, and what I think happened with the Pharisees, was that they started building fences. And then they started comparing fences. Oh, Rabbi so-and-so, that's a wonderful fence, but look at my fence. It's even more protective. And as more and more fences got built and as the fences got higher and higher, what ended up happening is that they got further and further away from what was holy because they were on the wrong side of the fence. Fences, my friends, are to keep us from drifting away from what's holy, not to keep us away from what's holy. This is the focus. All right, going back to Jesus and his disciples and this whole Sabbath controversy. We looked last week at, um, at conflict about feasting and fasting. This week there were conflicts about what you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath. Jesus' point is, if people are with me, they'll learn all they need to know about their eating habits and about their resting habits by being with me. If one of the major goals of the Sabbath was to foster a dependence upon God, the disciples left everything to follow Jesus. So I'd say mission accomplished. It was probably one of the reasons why they were eating grain in the middle of the Sabbath, because they didn't have a place to go and prepare for the Sabbath. And if a major goal of the Sabbath was to foster a relationship with God, they were with God. Literally, couldn't be closer to God. So again, mission accomplished. Friends, the Pharisees were observing the Sabbath, all right, but from a distance. What Jesus wanted was for them to experience the Sabbath, to enjoy the Sabbath. Even more, they wanted them to experience Him and enjoy Him. Because it's only in a relationship with God that these things make sense, that we can understand the purpose and the truth and what's even behind what God has given us in his word. That's where it all is, is in a relationship. How many of you know uh, Jeff Foxworthy's bit? You might be a redneck. Like, what is he talking about? Anybody know that one? Uh -huh. No, I don't know it. Like, if you're mowing the lawn and you find a car, you might be a redneck. My wife has done that, by the way. Um, here's what we're going to play.
All right, as far as an application, we're going to play you might be on the wrong side of the fence. Okay, it's a very easy game. I'm going to say something like if you have fence envy over somebody else's fence, then you, you might be, be on, on the wrong side, side of the fence. fence. That's it, that's the game. All right? If uh, you believe that your fence should be everybody else's fence, then you might, you might be on the wrong side of the fence. If you spend more time on fence maintenance than what is actually holy, then you might be on the wrong side of the fence. If you see your relationship, or if you see your righteousness and your relationship with God through your fence, well, then you're definitely on the wrong side of the fence. If you can't see what is holy except through the fence, again, you're definitely on the wrong side of the fence. And if your fence is keeping you from enjoying or experiencing what God has in store for you, then again, you might be on the wrong side of the fence. Here's my hope in all of this. That's a conversation starter. To figure out if you're on the wrong side of the fence. My hope is that at a, as a church, we could get to the place where the fence is essentially irrelevant. Because why would you want to drift away from God and his word? If we're facing God, if we're pursuing God, we're not even looking at the fence. We're looking at God and a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, being dependent on the Holy Spirit to make decisions day by day. That's my hope. It's not about the fence. That's not the ultimate application. The ultimate application is being about Jesus.